Chapter 11 Sewell Construction The 1980s were well on their way, and so was our revolution. This brought a new name, but that would mean nothing if we did not build a new culture and attendant structure, processes and practices. Our people also had to buy into what Darwin taught us. It is not the fittest of the species that survive and thrive. It is the ones that are most responsive to change. We had to change. We had to bring it about and trust that as many of our people as possible would embrace it. The name F. Sewell & Son had to go and we flirted with Sewell Building for a while because it mimicked the Fairclough Building I had seen emerge as my previous employer acquired, merged and modernised. I was impressed and so once more just unashamedly nicked somebody else's idea, this always being easier than having one's own creative angst. It didn't last long though, as people wondered, Sewell building what? So it became Sewell construction, which prevails to this day. We had called out the old culture of job for life complacency, low productivity, albeit good quality, and an unprofessional but friendly image. We had to keep the best of the tradition, track record and experience, but add professionalism with the pace and energy and a metabolic rate which would sink the competition. And sink the competition we did, in what now feels like a corporate blitzkrieg that even took us by surprise. I'm sure it was actually more one of building momentum than that, but it was still pretty rapid in business terms. The small East Hill builder that we inherited had grown into a local giant, with 250 workers on the books, who enjoyed quality site accommodation and had a yard full of top-notch plant and machinery at their disposal. We knew the best people needed and demanded the best tools to do the job. We were leading the way with our traditional competition trailing in our wake. My involvement with the CITB, Construction Industry Training Board, of dear Frank Markham, and the local group of employers he had set up, gave us a talent pipeline of apprentices, many of whom are still with the company as senior staff. Join us Carl Sorrell and Graham Lawson now run our Manor Works department, with Carl being another flexible and versatile construction professional who has done a series of management jobs with skill and dedication in a notable career. Oh, that he still had those flowing blonde locks rather than the shiny bald head and scary beard of today. Apprentice bricklayer Martin Stanley used to have jet black hair, but it turned grey as he grew into being our senior projects manager who has been entrusted with our biggest jobs. These he carried out with a thoughtful leadership style, different from the normal macho builder mode. His approach made it easy for us to get a string of gold considerate construction awards when that particular badge was in vogue. I went back from whence I came to get undergraduates and graduates from Leeds University and from Sheffield, the most notable of whom was probably Bridlington boy Craig Stainforth, who, I think, copped as much flack as I did when coming into this industry from academia. Not a lot has changed over the years with that one. We carried on with our work in health, and schools still form part of our staple diet, but it was an explosion of social housing that mainly fuelled our exponential growth. We built hundreds of quality homes for the likes of North British Housing Association, Pickering and Ferrance Homes, Beverley Borough Council, 
Avocet Trust, Havelock, etc. We were now constructing the roads ourselves rather than employing civil engineering subcontractors, with even the likes of Wimpy Homes recognising our expertise and engaging us to work on their private housing developments. Those 63 dwellings we surprisingly won and superbly delivered down Chantlands Avenue for the Railway Housing Association sure were a game changer, with the cottage wallopers extraordinaire Cavan Paul being in the right place at the right time for us to gain access to this lucrative market. I don't think the client's procurement practice of today or our risk analysis regime would even allow us to bid for that job nowadays. I'm particularly proud of the large five-star hotel-like structures of the Category 2 sheltered housing accommodation blocks of supported living apartments that now adorn the city at Maybury Village, Broadway Village, Summergroves Way, Cavendish Square, Wheeler Street, Middlesex Road, etc. We became as good at building them as their care regime they inspired did at looking after our elderly population when they needed it. I drive past them today and like anybody else from this industry, can see where my company has been and the difference it has made. It's just reward for tolerating what can be a volatile rather than a predictable and secure career. A main contractor's growth and success provides the same for its supply chain and wider associates as opportunities abound, and you become both a hub of business activity and a magnet for suppliers and subcontractors who want to jump on the bandwagon. Just as an entrepreneur or leader is ultimately only as good as the people they gather around them, so our reborn building company would only be as good as its supply chain. I have found these people and organisations fall into different categories. The majority in the construction industry are journeymen who are sycophantically with you whilst you have the work and quickly move on after the transaction is completed. Then there are some who want to give a little as well as receive. They are reliable, building more of a relationship, and so attain a longer-term preferred supplier status. Then we have the supply chain partners, in it for the distance, sharing risk, and with you all the way through the good times and bad. Some of these are so good that I wish they were actually part of the business, and I sometimes try to make that happen. The fancy business term for this is vertical integration whereby a supplier or an operation becomes so critical that you need to own and control them as part of your organisation. We experienced something like this by necessity on a project in Central Hull where we were refurbishing the former offices of Comet, the national electrical goods retailers formed and based in the city, to be offices for the council. Kenilworth House was a multi-storey block not dissimilar to the Bradford Permanent Building Society that was my first job at Fairclough, so I was confident about how to tackle the works on multiple floors, working downwards from the top. There is typically an unanticipated or unexpected crisis, large or small, that hits any project. That's where the leadership and management earn their corn, rather than when things are going smoothly. Here it was the critical finishing trade of painting and decorating when our subcontractor Arcade Decorations got into trouble and financial difficulties. Arcade had been preferred subcontractor of ours for a couple of years with Terry Mount in the office giving us good prices and commercial terms and Dave Haywood out on site getting the jobs done to time and with decent quality. 
What we weren't aware of was the discord between the two, which came to a head on this project, with Terry evidently keeping commercial information from his co-director Dave, including the perilous state of their finances. My recollection, in short, is that Terry hopped it, or had it away on his toes, as Dave would describe it, leaving his firm bust. Dave short of money owed him, and our job in trouble. There was only one thing for it, and that was for Sewell to assume responsibility for painting and decorating, buying the materials for Dave, who would contract with us on a labour-only basis to complete the job. Finish it he did, with half the number of operatives one would have expected, and to a decent quality finish. Improving productivity is about doing more with less, and this was a superb example of just that. Throughout my career, I have been deeply suspicious of people bleating on about needing more resources as a default position, rather than working harder, more smartly, or longer to get the job done. Good teams play quick, and so do their individual players, who must have the sharp minds and high metabolic rate to get results beyond expectations. I really like Dave Haywood. His angular features, with their intense, piercing eyes, sat atop the wiry frame of the best pound-for-pound grafter I have ever come across. He was honest, reliable, and just the type of person you would want to go into business with. We therefore offered to save and resurrect Arcade, with us looking after the commercial aspects and Dave doing his stuff on site. In short, we had our first in-house subcontractor. A work ethic bordering on the lunatic was difficult for his staff to keep up with. More than once when I got into the office early, I would find our painting boss sitting back with a cuppa, discovering that he had worked all the previous night to meet some insane progress target, normally set by himself. On one occasion I came round the corner in the office corridor to find Dave and Carl Sorrell grappling on the floor. I initially wondered if they had become intimate, but it was a disagreement as to whether an area was ready for painting or not on Carl's site. No worries for me. I love passion about work like I did in my football teams, and these two obviously cared enough to fight about it, so I just stepped over them and let them get on with it. Arcade decorations beat every productivity target given to them in our long run in the demanding world of house building. The reason for this was Dave's leadership, which set the turn. The only target I can recall him missing was when I asked him to tart up an old pine blanket chest in the joiner's shop for Sue, and pressure of work made him forget. When I reminded him, he was quietly mortified, and it was delivered to our house beautifully renovated, the only problem being that an odour was progressively invading our spare bedroom. I don't have much of a sense of smell, but even I knew there was something wrong in that bedroom, with the mystery finally solved when it was traced back to the blanket box. Dave had put a conciliatory bunch of flowers for Sue inside the box weeks before, and by the time it was delivered back to us and we had discovered them, they were rancid, rotten and dripping with the glutinous brown liquid that had stained the box to the point that it required redecoration. Sums up our Dave. Arcade decorations were to be followed by Geneva Services, where we did the same thing with a plumbing and heating engineer called Barry Cusset, and Arcade Ceramics with a tiler called Eric Wilmot, and a retailer who would run our showroom in Sutton called Mike Ward.
These joined our newly branded joiner shop, SLS Architectural Woodwork, Sewell Lee Sewell, to give Keith and I our first equal share of what we were creating. They all contributed for a time, but only arcade decorations went the distance, with Graham Atkins ultimately joining Dave to see him productively into semi-retirement 30 years on. Our progress was also attracting the attention of the local press, who were interested in the coincidence of these two souls of the same age who had met at university and were running this up-and-coming Hull company, but were not related in any way. I initially corrected anybody who assumed we were related, there being eyesight in that, but eventually got fed up of continually telling the story and subsequently let people think what they wanted. Until the publication of an article in the Hull Daily Mail business supplement which told our true story. This prompted a letter to Dennis from the Sewell Society in Hornsey who warned him that his business partner Paul was not in any way a proper Sewell of Dennis's lineage but most likely from a band of dangerous travellers who terrorised Lincolnshire back in the day. A variation on Birmingham's Peaky Blinders who would find fame on our television screens 30 years later but with hard hats rather than flat caps. Our family's highly amusing until the posh snob boss of a traditional local painting and cleaning subcontractor wanted to deal only with the family Sewell of Sewell Construction rather than the other one. The other one took pleasure in telling him that from now on we would be exclusively using our own arcade decorations, not due to his class-ridden disrespect or his bad manners, but due to the fact that in comparison they were basically fucking crap. Among the impressive catalogue of work in this era, there has to be a standout project worthy of more detailed examination. And for me, this was our creation of Dove House Hospice. This is certainly not due to its design, for it is a rather underwhelming, austere, red brick construction with no notable functional innovation to recommend it. It is not even because of the two Spice Girl royal princesses Fergie and Diana being connected with it. The ebullient Duchess of York laying the foundation stone and the regal Princess of Wales opening the facility, as well as coming back subsequently to work incognito in it as a carer. The opening ceremony once again gave rise to an incident involving our site manager, but this one was marginally less embarrassing than Colin meets Princess Anne at Morrill Street Health Centre. As the official party pulled up outside and disembarked from their big black car, a young lady escorting the Duchess of York stopped in her tracks, looked over to the receiving party and threw her arms out whilst exclaiming, Cavern! Our cav looked stunned and embarrassed. Cavern! she repeated, arms still out, breaking ranks and quickly walking over to him. It is you, isn't it? I bet she was glad it was. After all these years, they had evidently grown up together and played as children, Lady Jane being from the big house with some royal connections which explained their presence that day. Cavan's dad, on the other hand, was one of the senior staff who run the estate. The British class system, eh? They were equal playing as kids, but were now bowing and scraping and offering up poses. What was special about the project was actually none of this stuff, or its high profile in the local media, 
but the emotional attachment that the community had with the facility and the connection we had with both. This was the first example I perceived of us going beyond the transaction of the building contract to getting involved with its operation afterwards. We helped with fundraising and Dennis took a position on the charity's board for many years after. Mm, I thought, what a nice example of a community serving itself from within and us going beyond the basic building contract to partake in civil society. This period would spawn lots of good practice that we would embed into our processes and culture but which at the time were not seen as necessary or even useful. Short-term programming, where the overall contract programme that adorns the wall of every builder's office and is used to assess the progress of works, was supplemented by a range of shorter-term programmes right down to a weekly version. This included morning prayers, which was a daily huddle first thing, where all trades would gather for a few minutes to agree and plan the day and sort out any operational issues there and then. We had many subcontractors who resisted this perceived imposition that was evidently not required on any other site they worked on, but they bought into it when they realised that it was all about making the whole site operation more inclusive and efficient. Going off-site to visit suppliers and subcontractors at their premises, just as Keith and I had done with the chance of bricks, created engagement and less chance of bullshit entering the process. Tidy, safe sites had to be seen as an aid to quality and efficiency, rather than a chore that interfered with productivity. Martin Stanley's legendary 10 minutes a day rule, whereby all the workers on the project would stop as one to tidy up and hence keep the site properly clean and tidy, sprung from here. It never ceases to amaze me when I see the projects of even the most renowned national builders looking like a complete shithole where the skip is generally tidier than the rooms in the building. I just wouldn't have it. In the same vein, I also have a thing about the way our people look and the first impression you get when arriving at any sewer facility. The seven seconds you allegedly have to create a good impression and all that. Martin Stanley tells a pivotal story about when he was building the iconic Lift Health Centre on Orchard Park and the incumbent Secretary of State for Health was due to visit. I went down to see him the day before and he was proud to show me his newly painted hoardings and shiny site entrance gates, all looking spick and span. In front of the site, however, there were weeds growing about a foot high in the margin between the hoarding and the kerb. They spoil the look of things a bit, don't they, Matt? I said. Ah, that's not our land. It's the council's, so they're responsible for them, he explained. Alan Johnson doesn't and won't know whose bloody weeds they are, and neither will he care, I berated him. Martin tells the story of Alan Johnson's weeds to this day, and it is this type of folklore that builds and maintains a culture. My insistence on the advent of site uniforms brought me even more problems, with accusations of Big Brother and breaching civil liberties getting the unions involved. This was an industry where people took no pride in personal appearance and were generally happy to look like a rabble. I wasn't having this one either and cited a range of examples such as doctors and the armed forces where appearance breeds unity and confidence. I remembered how, when coaching the Cottingham football team, I always insisted that the players took their shirts into their shorts, pulled up their socks and ran out together 
even in a game on a park pitch. This was challenged by a little tour rag called Mark Warhurst, a former professional footballer who came to us after being released by Hull City. He was a seriously good player, but cherished his individuality in always having his shirt outside of his shorts and socks rolled down to his ankles. Since when did any of this shit win you a football match? He sounded off in the dressing room once. Not strictly, I replied, but in a close match, the mentality and attitude that made you do this shit will probably win you the game. And if you really don't want to do it, then piss right off and play for somebody else. He did. We had a lesson in site security and community involvement on a small housing site in Dorchester Road, a short drive from our offices in Sutton and on the edge of the Bransome Estate. This is the legend of the mythical pink padlock. As we were setting up the site, with our double-stacked yellow transline cabins, as was now our house style, site manager Steve Wilson was approached by a tall, scary-looking local man who inquired about our arrangements for site security. We are totally fencing the site, Steve replied, and we have a term contract with a security company who will have a guard resident when we're not here. It's like Dodge City around here, mate, the local responded, shaking his head. I hope that's going to be enough. He walked off, but was back within two weeks. How's it going? He inquired, knowing that it had been carnage with dismantled fencing and the traumatised guard being locked in the cabin, which was rocked back and forth by a gang of youths and being bombarded with bricks. Not good, I imagine, he went on. Tell you what, he said, pulling a small, flimsy pink padlock out of his pocket of the type normally used to secure a lady's suitcase. I will hire you this for 20 notes in my hand every week. You put it on those gates instead of that big useless padlock you've got now, and you will have no problems. Steve was naturally sceptical but desperate, and so did as he was asked. The trouble ceased, and we were secure for the duration of the job at a fraction of the cost of the security company. You'll be getting the drift by now, as am I, that it is always a great individual who comes along as a game changer, not so much a strategy, structure or plan. I had first met this particular type of individual when I was a graduate management trainee with Fairclough and they had sent me on an NFBTE site management course in Leamington Spa. This four-week course had a real impact on me, as did one of the guys running it, called Jeff Gordon. Jeff was an accountant by profession, but he was always quick to deny any professional qualifications by calling himself a non-accounting accountant. He was small and stocky, with a very dark complexion that may have indicated he was of mixed race. If he was, it was something his slow, rich, southern voice never indicated, only that he had spent a long time working in Africa. His white teeth belied the fact that he liked a theatrically smoked cigarette, and his thinning dark hair confirmed that he was mid-career, if his stories of his other connections and associations did not. Jeff loved recounting a story, but always overdid them. I don't know why, because his wisdom and experience were enough to make him impressive enough in any company. Through the NFBTE and CITB, I contacted him again years later 
to see whether he could help us reinvent the traditional F. Sewell into our vision of a modern Sewell construction. I thought this was a smart move because Jeff was an impressive nerd in an industry network of other professionals that would be able to help us. Don't let anyone kid you that you build anything of significance without help. Jeff would bring in lots of it and when needed. These people would be our external team to match and help the internal team that we were slowly but surely creating. People like Brian Williams, formerly of Custain, who helped us with our incentive scheme, planning process and consequent production control regime. But Jeff was always the main strategic lead consultant. His influence and input matched and mimicked that of Bob Craven Jones on the retail side and he too would eventually become a non-executive director of our company. I particularly liked how this role gave key advisors a legal as well as strategic responsibility. I remember disagreeing once over lunch with the iconic supermarket pioneer Ken Morrison who hated the interference of non-execs whereas I felt they had a role in a good balanced company board. In our case, of course, they had to become part of the family in respect of the culture I coveted, and both Jeff and Bob did. Jeff taught us that business is all about three phases. Get work, do work, get paid. All three are equally important, but the reality is that if you do not affect the first one, you will never get the chance to do the other two. Much later, Jeff would ask me to concentrate on the get work aspect of working for the company in a business development role while Dennis worked in the company on the operations side. This was at a time when Keith was starting not to think much of any of it and that included Jeff. When I got feisty and indignant about something or other, Jeff would sometimes say, you're right Paul, but sometimes being right isn't always enough, which made me act more maturely and think of the wider consequences of my decisions. He simplified a way in which we could look at our people, individually assessing whether they were an asset or a liability. If they were an asset, you only had to think further about their reward. If they were a liability, this begged a further question, which was, were they a liability that for some compelling reason you needed to put up with? The people I have let go have failed this test and there are currently success stories that have only got through the supplementary liability route. Jeff taught us what an Australian budget was, whereby you started with the outcome you desired and then worked back to the necessary inputs that would give you it. And he always felt that the company accountant, not the project quantitator, should complete the vital cost versus value comparison project financial results. A lifetime of experiencing dodgy reporting and late financial swings in performance suggests he may have had a point. Jeff brought in a colleague to give us an in-depth seminar on the critical success factor of time management and I was so moved and impressed by its content that I reprise it myself to Sewell people to this day. Maybe the biggest piece of personal advice he gave me concerned a dilemma about whether we should lose a critical client or take on a job we felt might be troublesome. North British Housing Association was a key client when we were in our social housing phase and we had done much work for them. 
On this occasion, however, we had discovered an error in the bid on which the contract convention was to confirm or withdraw, and I chose withdrawal as best for all concerned. This was not a popular decision with the clients, who intimated aggressively that we would never work for them again, or with my staff, who felt we could make up the quantum of the error and still make the contract profitable. My instinct told me that despite all the pressure and me going out on a limb with the decision, that we should not go ahead. So I asked my mentor and advisor, JG, what he thought. His advice was gold dust. Paul, he paused for dramatic effect. The Housing Association has a few days and a few quid to lose as they relet the contract on the right terms. Kevin, Merrills, our estimating director, and the rest of the staff do ultimately have a job to lose, I guess. But you have a 120-year-old company to lose, so it's your decision, not anybody else's, and it is your job to make what you feel is the right one. They say that business people are judged by the deals they don't do as much as the ones they do, the latter being visible and the former one of those best deals I didn't do. We didn't do this one and I don't think we work for them again. Despite being at times an affected, pompous, self-ingratiating southerner who thought his own jokes were funny and got on a lot of people's nerves, particularly Dennis's, Jeff gave us so much over the nearly two decades he was with us, including, of course, negotiating and closing the deal to give us the first PFR school in the country of Victoria Dock Hull in 1999. In return, I'm sure we gave him some irreverent liveliness and fun that I perceive his life lacked, as well as the work family he craved. He was a good man, Jeff Gordon, fundamental in creating sewer construction in the 80s and the sewer group in the 90s, and he fully deserves my gratitude and his place in my Hall of Fame. Alec Naylor was one of the rare mature external signings coming to us from Stepney Contractors in his late 50s when they went into liquidation. There were a spurt of business failures around this time, with Robinson and Soden, Quibble, Wrights and C.R. Booth also departing the local scene. This was no surprise to me at the time, when having plenty of work on was more important than its profitability, and when risk denial was preferred to risk management, creating a real race to the bottom. They are like a hundred lemmings running towards a cliff, I said to Dennis, and they glanced sideways at each other, thinking a hundred lemmings cannot be wrong. Thank God Dennis and I jammed our little paws in and let them go on their way. Believe it or not, this still happens today. This industry has not changed that much. Alec was a proud, broad, stocky Scot with a bald head that sported unattractive ginger freckles which unerringly attracted my gaze. He was widowed too young and left with his only daughter, his work and his love of jazz to get him through. He would smile grudgingly rather than laugh but could lose his temper and ramp with a passion. Alec was a stereotypical Scot as I noticed one day when I was with him in his office and a joiner came in to ask him for some screws. How many do you want? Alec asked, all Celtic suspicion. A box, the joiner replied, a little surprised at the question. No, Alec asserted. How many do you want? He clarified as he prepared to count them out, one by one. 
the young joiner could not believe what he was hearing. Alec did some decent jobs for us, if in a haphazard sort of way, a la Colin Burgess, always just passing Jeff's liability survival test. His signature project was the complex refurbishment of the Hull City Hall Victoria Galleries, which we had won at a good price because the competition had been scared off by the timescale and requirements for quality in this iconic public facility. We had priced the risks and all the overtime, so we were confident we had enough in to get the job done. Alec and his team just had to perform. And they did. The seven day a week, ten hours a day pressure did tell though, for when I went down to see him one day, he had locked himself into his office so he could concentrate on some paperwork without the incessant interruptions that were an anathema to a command and control freak like Alec. I knocked on the door and a distracted Scottish voice came from inside. Whoever it is, go away. I'm busy. It's Paul, Alec, I called. I don't care. Go away. It's Paul Sewell, a little more clearly and assertively this time. I don't care if it's Paul Getty. I am normally laid back and good-humoured, but I'd had enough. Alec, open this fucking door now. Fuck off. What do I do now? I thought to myself. After a minute's reflection, I pushed the temporary door hard, and to my surprise it was so poorly fitted that it came away from its frame, leaving me standing in his office with a door and frame in my hand. What an entrance, just like the Incredible Hulk. Alec looked up from his desk, realised who it was, and got all unnecessary. Shocked, simpering, apologetic, and pathetic, I immediately realised that this was a man on the edge, and I had to do something about it. He looked awful. The rest of him now looked as bad as the freckles on his head. I made him go home for his first day off in weeks, and rang Pete Cron to get him to cover and then support. Cronny loved that. An open, overtime checkbook was there for him until the end of the job. He was in double time heaven. On the Monday, Alec came back in for the site meeting, and I sat through it with him. The client, Hull City Council, was getting stressed and agitated too, projecting their angst onto my site team. They had booked Roger Whittaker, a popular folk singer of the day, with his flute singing about leaving old Durham town for exactly six weeks' time, and it didn't look as though we were going to be ready to host this sell-out concert. I endeavoured to calm things down by revealing our plan B. If we're not ready, Roger Whittaker on flute will be accompanied by Peter Cron on hammer, I smilingly suggested. As is normal with my attempts at crisis humour, nobody found it funny but me. After the meeting, I stopped behind to talk to Alec. He and his freckles both looked a lot better, so it was obvious he really needed his weekends. I explained that he now had a second foreman with him in Pete Cron, and he was to work only till 6pm each night and take the weekends off. As an incentive, I added, If you do as you're told and we get there without Cronny being on stage with Roger, I will treat you to a full week to indulge yourself immersed in your beloved jazz, in its spiritual home of New Orleans. Things went well on the running, with the only real problem threatening handover on time being that some plastered columns in the Mortimer suite needed painting and decorating to look as if they were marble, 
in keeping with the neoclassical surroundings. It was in the specification that the client would themselves appoint and pay for the artist to carry out this work, for they had contacts in this specialist field and had booked them in advance. Unfortunately, these people let them down at the last minute. Without a feasible replacement, they were desperate and at a loss as to what to do. Enter a rescuing hero in the guise of the painting contractor foreman, Dave Haywood, who got to hear of the conundrum whilst painting the other areas. He approached Alec. I can sort that out for you if you want. Alec asked if it was because he knew of another specialist, but Dave said no, he would do it himself. We were surprised and concerned, but also desperate, so I persuaded the architect that we had in fact nothing to lose and we should take the risk of winning rather than being inhibited by the fear of losing, as we used to say in football. And so we went with Dave. He did not look like an artist, far from it. He looked like a painter and decorator who was used to stark, rough building sites rather than a warm, genteel studio. When he turned up that morning with feathers and a palette rather than a brush and painting, hope swelled in our desperate breasts. It was not misplaced. He was brilliant. Working with a skill and confidence I have never seen before on a building site, his concentration and sensitivity were awesome. His deft, delicate use of the feathers as he caressed the paint onto the plastered surface revealed an artist, not a painter and decorator. The finished product was perfect. You could not tell it from marble and the architect was delighted and relieved. I asked Dave where he had learned the skill. College, he said, when they did proper apprenticeships, I did this as an extra subject. Once again in my life, the lesson was learned never to judge a book by its cover. Extreme talent is all over the place. It just needs to be found and liberated. Talent is equally spread amongst our population, but tragically, opportunity is not. The job got finished with a last gasp gargantuan effort, as is often the case. Roger got to tell us how and why he departed Old Durham Town without any help from Peter Cron and his hammer, thankfully. Alec had an idyllic week in New Orleans, immersed in music I neither understand or like, but for him it was better than any monetary bonus. In my book, experiences always beat money as a special reward for a special performance. I returned to the site in the summer of 2017 for the first time since that handover, courtesy of Ziggy Stardust. His surviving Spiders from Mars were playing their iconic album in its entirety as a celebration of Hull as UK City of Culture and it was a one-off, wonderful, nostalgic event. During the evening I managed to slip away from Suffragette City and Starman to wander into those areas we had created a lifetime ago and they were unbelievably just as we had left them, including those marble columns that I felt only I knew were actually plaster. It all seemed like three years ago rather than 30. Christmas Eve drinks at the Ship Inn in Sutton had moved into a big firm's party celebration at a major venue in the city with a sit-down meal and an after-dinner speech by Dennis, Keith or me and a disco to late. Sue didn't care for the occasion as much but came along unlike Alec Naylor who seldom graced us with his presence apart from this once. 
The event that year was at the Staff House of Hull University and had attracted a record attendance, which unbelievably included Alec. His trip to New Orleans may have positively affected his appetite to engage with the work team that had supported him and bosses who had been thoughtful and generous. It was my turn to make the speech, and I duly tried my best to be funny, cracking jokes about people and notable events of the year, whilst trying to be kind and retaining a bit of decorum and dignity as one would expect from one of the directors. This modus operandi, however, was not adopted by Keith, who was in party mode. Unfortunately, some of the lads anticipated this and hatched a plot to take advantage and have some fun. After dinner, with the dancing in full swing, the music stopped and a single chair was placed in the middle of the now empty dance floor. Keith was invited to sit on it, which he did without hesitation, exhibiting a smiling, tipsy anticipation. He sat there as if he had won first prize in some worthy competition, confident looking around the room, awaiting the spoils of victory, with not a care in the world. After what seemed an age, an attractive young lady then entered the dance floor to raucous appreciation. Remember, this was the 1980s, and it was now obvious to everyone that one of the more risque party practices of that politically incorrect decade was about to unfold. The strippogram, or kissogram as they were known, was perfectly illustrated in that iconic British comedy, Only Fools and Horses, when the patrons of the Nags Head arranged one for Uncle Albert's birthday. This was so similar that writer John Sullivan might have been in the audience, capturing events for his script. Keith was less surprised and more welcoming of the lady's attention than Uncle Albert, but what followed could have been a straight piece of plagiarism. In the show, the stripper turns out to be Del Boy's new girlfriend, the actress he knew was Raquel, and he was devastated. At our Christmas party, the stripper turned out to be Alec Naylor's daughter, and he too was devastated. How that evening ended depended upon who you were. For most, I'm sure, it was a typical 1980s boozy night, soon to be forgotten. For others, including me, it was uncomfortable and something I wasn't bothered if I never saw again. For Keith Lee, it was after-show party time. For Sewell Construction as an organisation, I feel the events that followed shaped our destiny. Keith had driven to the university in his Porsche Carrera, and unfortunately chose to drive away in it at the end of the evening. I don't know the full circumstances, but the police picked him up, his registration plate, Lee 900, probably hadn't helped, and charged him with drink driving, for which he was to receive a heavy fine and a ban. By far the biggest sanction, in my opinion, was that Dennis Sewell, observing the events of that night, had had enough. This didn't manifest itself straight away. It took until we were Sewell Group in 1990 for it to reach its final showdown. But, looking back, our 15-year partnership as three revolutionary construction musketeers was over that night. I still considered Keith to be my special mate, if burgeoning Enfant Terrible, and he still had those flashes of business genius that I loved him for, but he was slowly and surely moving away from us and into a different hedonistic world that was more attractive to him. 
He let me down badly after dragging me away from my family one quiet East Riding Sunday for a long drive to an army base in Thetford in the depths of Norfolk, where he was stopping with his family. My mission was to rescue him and his wife Angela after they had been involved in a nasty road accident that had written off his car, leaving them stranded miles from home. My issue was that he couldn't level with me, his supposed rescuing mate as the actual questionable circumstances of the crash, and I don't think I ever forgave him for that. In the end, at the turn of the 90s, I felt he would sooner be anywhere than in the company helping us to grow it, and whilst I still felt stupidly loyal, something had to give. What gave was Dennis Sewell. I can't actually recall which straw broke the camel's back, but Dennis called me one day to request we meet at his place and then go on to Keith's house in Swanland. When I got to his house, Dennis was agitated and upset and insisting that, no matter what I felt, we had reached the parting of the ways, as he put it. I just had to decide whether I would go off with my friend Keith or stay with him and continue developing the existing Sewell business. It wasn't a hard decision really, as Keith had become untrustworthy, distracted and disloyal, particularly to me. When we got to his place, Keith was at first calm and considered, then he became emotional when Dennis informed him of where we were. Dennis is a man of few words and gets them out of the way as soon as practicable to impart exactly what he means. He used the term parting of the ways again and was gone, leaving Keith and I alone together. Dennis Sewell had just made the greatest contribution to the Sewell group of today. Keith insulted me and called me a snake in the grass, then he and I embraced as tears flowed. I was accused of disloyalty, but did not respond, feeling that it was Keith who had been disloyal over recent years. I was asked to dump Dennis and go off and start a business with Keith, to which I did not reply. The time for discussion and argument was long gone. Only the divorce arrangements and subsequent recriminations remained. I was left with an overall sense of sadness, but also one of liberation. Keith Lee was always looking for something. I sincerely hope he found it. There were some who wondered what would happen to Sewell now it had lost its major talent, its true entrepreneur and its driving force. History now tells us that none of this was actually the case as the organisation's best days were most definitely in front of us and as much more than a builder. <laughs>